You are about to take part in a session from a Discipleship Bible School held at YWAM Richmond in the spring of 2022, and we are so grateful you are here. So much prayer went into every element of this course, from recruitment to content editing, and we are convinced you will leave this knowing God a little deeper. The Discipleship Bible School, or DBS, is an opportunity to survey the entirety of Scripture to discover God's redemptive plan for all of humanity. Over the course of 12 weeks, teachers explored the Bible section by section, not only to deepen students' understanding of what was written then, but reveal what we are being invited into now. If you like what you are hearing, visit ywamva.org to discover what courses we are offering, ways you can journey with our team, and other content created to help you know God and make Him known. Everything you hear was created as a step of faith by a team of YWAMers and volunteers who felt God inviting them to capture the DBS in its entirety, over 120 hours of content. If this content blesses you, consider supporting future schools and content by giving at ywamrichmond.org donate. Thank you so much for listening, and we can't wait for you to experience God today. Let's pick up where we were, and we're going to start the big experiment that Kohelet is inviting us to join him with, starting with everything is Havel, everything is breath or mist or vapor or empty. Um, that's the basic expression. So you can translate it vanity, which uh, I guess is what your ESV does, or meaningless um, but it does fit with the phrase that you find later in the book, chasing after wind. Uh, the idea of vapor or mist, chasing after wind. Um, have you ever, when you were a kid, uh, put your hand out the window to cup your, so, so it feels like you're catching the wind, you know, except you never do catch it. Uh, that's the sort of thing that uh, Kohelet is talking about. Other options that have been used to translate this are absurdity. Uh, that's a little more edgy as a translation. Fleeting, uh, frustration, or illusory. Uh, those are all, I suppose, possibilities. But the basic question is, what is to be gained? Uh, I think everybody has experienced the feeling of the banality of life. Just It just keeps going on and doesn't seem to be going anywhere. I, I mean, you probably don't feel that way all the time, but on occasion, you say, you know, I'm just plodding along here. Um, kind of the contradiction between life and meaning. So this emptiness, this is what existentialists call angst or forlornness. Uh, this idea that you just can't seem to get a hold of a, of a, of a, of a true meaning for where you are and where you're going. So <clears throat> you go to work every day, you go through the endless cycles of nature, uh, summer, fall, winter, and spring. Uh, all of those are repeated human experience, and in the end, nothing seems to matter very much. So it doesn't even help to be famous, because in the end, nobody remembers you anyway. Uh, I can tell you people who were famous when I was your age, and you won't even know who they were. Their fame is, uh, well, it's like mist. It's just kind of dissipated. It's gone. Uh, 
They don't care. So it leads us anyway to ask what I would call ultimate questions. And that's what Kohelet wants us to do. He wants to ask ultimate questions. Uh, I've used this little um, circle. You may be familiar with the little guy in the circle, which is uh, a drawing by Leonardo da Vinci uh, called the Vitruvian Man. Uh, but in any case, I've, I've kind of used it as sort of the model human that's looking for meaning by asking ultimate questions. So here are the kind of questions that are, are ultimate. What is ultimately real? Is there ultimate being? Something beyond just myself and my own experience. What is ultimately real? To whom am I ultimately responsible? How do you think most modern people would answer those two questions? What is ultimately real and to whom am I ultimately responsible? Yeah. I think I, uh, we, we live in a culture that is increasingly narcissistic, self-absorbed, uh, where me and my experience is the thing that counts most. Uh, other kinds of questions, uh, are humans good or evil? The word evil is a word you don't hear much anymore. It's uh, not gone, but it's not used very much. Uh, in fact, until this last little excursion by Mr. Putin, uh, you didn't hardly hear it at all, and then suddenly writers are starting to use the word evil again, uh, like they did in the days of uh, the 1930s with the rise of the Third Reich. Uh, evil as something not just uh, aimless behavior, but something that is truly bad in essence. Um, what is ultimately good or evil. Uh, how do humans define their problems and what are their solutions? How do you think modern people answer that question? What, what are their problems? Well, both, their own problem, but, but largely things that would be broad enough to include uh, the human race. What do they see as their problems? And how are they going to find a solution? Yeah. Well, 
the word systemic has become uh, very much part of modern vocabulary, which basically means it's, it's the system's fault. Whatever's wrong is the system's fault, which is at the same time implicitly saying it, it's not my fault. It's the system's fault, and I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I'm just the victim of uh, the system. Uh, there's a lot of utopianism, uh, the idea that we can actually build a better world. Um, IBM uses that as its basic slogan, building a better world, you know. Are they building a better world? Not that I've noticed, um, slogan or no slogan. Valuation, what kind of choices do I make? And what do I base my choices on? These would be ultimate questions, moral questions, destiny. Where am I going? Why? Uh, so in the guise of Solomon, the uh, writer of, uh, of Ecclesiastes has both the time and the money to explore different kinds of things. So he is going to talk about this huge burden that God has laid on the human race. And the burden is the burden of meaning. What do I mean? What meaning do I have? So Kohelet is an intellectual observer, and um, he's devoted to this, uh, to this experiment. But he's also extrapolating himself out of himself so that he can watch himself. Now, that's kind of a feature of Ecclesiastes I think is really interesting, is that he steps outside himself to watch himself as he goes through this experiment and to see what happens. So he's both the, the one who experiences it, but he's at the same time an observer observing what he's experiencing and talking about it. Um, his initial reaction is, is just despair. Everything is vapor. It's just chasing wind. I, I cannot seem to catch it. I cannot seem to catch meaning. And humans pride themselves uh, on their ability to change things for the better, but Kohelet finds this to be pretty empty. Um, we have, uh, in, in our lifetimes, the curve for the increase in technology, it's not a line going like this, it is a curve going up like this, and it's going straight up now. Um, uh, are we becoming better people with all of the increase in technology? I would say probably not. We're probably not much different than people 3,000 years ago in terms of, uh, of, of uh, our character uh, and that sort of thing. And uh, Kohelet realizes this. Life can't be straightened out. You can't just, there, there's, there's no way to, to straighten it out. It's, 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 it's basically crooked. Uh, it's fractured. It's fragmented. So he's exploring life as this sort of a, like a renaissance man. We use that term renaissance man to talk about people that are skilled in a whole variety of kinds of things. And he's going to discover this maddening limitation that no matter what I do or how I do it or how well I do it, I still end up empty. I don't seem to have any ultimate meaning. He resorts to nihilism. Uh, he explores absurdity and debauchery. Uh, <laughs> he tries everything. Uh, but life as a hedonist doesn't give him meaning. 
So he doesn't deny himself anything, and he says that. I denied myself nothing. Um, now, most of us can't do that. For one thing, we don't have enough money. We have to deny ourselves things because we, we can't do it. We just don't have the resources. But he has the resources to explore everything. He denies himself nothing. He pursues pleasure. Uh, but he remains this objective observer of himself from the outside while he's doing this. So he dabbles in architecture. He dabbles in horticulture, plant life, gardening. Uh, he reinforces his leisure by purchasing slaves, which means they do all the hard stuff and he's got time to play around with this whole idea of meaning. Um, he tries ranching for a while. Uh, he tries financial enterprise. He tries music. Uh, he tries sexual variety. Uh, he all, basically, he tries all the things that everybody's trying today. Almost everything he tries is being tried right now widely in the world. Uh, and the result, well, everything's coming up empty. I don't find any ultimate meaning in this. Uh, so it's captivating for the moment. And in fact, that's what seems to be emphasized in our world is the moment. In fact, we use that expression, don't we? To, to, to be in the moment. Um, that's become kind of a buzzword uh, in the modern world, to live in the moment. Uh, but it doesn't last. It's, it's vapor. It just disappears. Uh, so the immediacy of the experience uh, is rewarding temporarily, but it doesn't have any lasting power. So when the process is finished, there's nothing left. Everything is vapor. I've got a quote here um, uh, about Ernest Hemingway, which I, I have, have any of you read any of Hemingway's works, uh, For Whom the Bell Tolls, uh, that sort of thing? Um, you might have had to in a reading list at some point in secondary school or college. The certainty of death, what Ernest Hemingway called that old whore, canceled any enduring value. During the final years of his life, Hemingway was beset with high blood pressure, diabetes, a bad liver, and severe depression. He remarked to a friend, what does a man care about? Staying healthy, working good, eating and drinking with his friends, enjoying himself in bed? I haven't any of them, none of them. And so one morning early, he took his favorite shotgun, he put it in his mouth, and he blew his head off. And Ecclesiastes was his favorite book. It's too bad he didn't get to the end of the book. He was still in the process of exploring the stuff in the middle. So how similar are the questions of Kohelet to the modern search for meaning? Uh, we've talked about that, but I, I think you would probably agree that these are extremely relevant contemporary questions. People are exploring them. They may not even know they're exploring, but they're implicitly exploring them. Uh, some of them are more aware of the explanation. Others, maybe not. So what do you think the contemporary culture with this obsession of immediate experience and FMO, you know, all know what FMO is, right? Fear of missing out. That's sort of another current buzzword or buzz. It's not a word, actually. It's an acronym, but... Anyway, um, what do you think people uh, in the contemporary culture are learning 
about life and meaning and what might they learn from Kohelet? I find it interesting that when I get ads on my computer, which are interminable, <laughs> and you get to the part where you can say yes or no, you can say yes or you can say, I'll miss out. That immediately is a way of trying to get you not to miss out. You can't just say no. You have to say, I will miss out. And some people don't ever want to miss out on anything. So it's, it's a push. Uh, I mean, it's a commercial one and a shameless one, but it, nevertheless, it's a push in that direction. Um, do you think people actually think they're making progress towards some kind of solution? I think some of them do. Um, I think they're going to be very disappointed. Uh, but they're pushing hard to try to find some kind of utopia. Uh, and Kohelet is exploring that. So anyway, in, in reflecting on this grand experiment, he affirms, in the end, he said, there was nothing left to try. I, I, I really, I, I did it all. It's, it's sort of like one of the old things, I had it all, but it's sort of I did it all. Uh, he discovered that there were such a thing as relative values, and the book of Kohelet talks about relative values. Some things are better than others. Even though they may not give you final meaning, at least they're better than others. Better, it's better uh, to do certain kinds of things than just be an idiot, okay? But still, they don't give you any lasting uh, meaning. Wisdom is better than folly, but it still doesn't give you lasting meaning. And the wise person is at least aware of the world while the fool is only aware of himself. Um, so at the same time, the prospect of death reduces everything to nothing. There are very few things I can guarantee you in life, but I can guarantee you one, absolutely. You are going to die. You cannot get out of that. You are going to die. And that is what the old clergyman meant several hundred years ago when he wrote the poem in which there is this famous line, ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee. That was back in the days when uh, funerals had bells, you know, and so ask not for whom the bell tolls, it, it tolls for you because you will die. There's limited value in work. Uh, his response to trying to find meaning in work is basically, I hated life. And I've met a, quite a number of people who have vocations and they've become educated to do certain things, but in the end, they hate life. It just doesn't have meaning for them. Work, of course, is central to all of life, uh, even if you're caught up in the idea of working to get ahead and so on, but uh, it doesn't give you that ultimate meaning. And so in the end, Kohelet, he saw everything, he felt everything, he drank everything, he did everything, and everything was vapor. Everything was mist. Even your accomplishments, they have to be left to somebody else. If you amass a great fortune, that has to be left to somebody else. Probably somebody who won't even appreciate it and will spend it in ways that you find horrible. Uh, 
you can leave everything you can leave to your kids, but they may just sell it and use the money for something else. Uh, you, you have as much chance of being a fool as being anything better than a fool. So life is this paradox of the tyranny of time. Now, <clears throat> one of the most famous passages, if not the most famous passage, in the book of Ecclesiastes is the one that says, to everything there is a season, and to everything a time under heaven, a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to pluck up what is planted, and it goes on with a series of things like that. What do you think he's doing with that passage? When you were reading that passage, you've read Ecclesiastes now? Oh, you haven't read it yet. Tomorrow. Okay, well, you're going to read it tomorrow. So when you read it tomorrow and you get to this passage, uh, try to reflect not only what he says, but what he's doing with this passage. I would suggest he is talking about the rhythms of life and the various ups and downs of life. But underneath that description is an implicit question. Is there meaning in all of this? Does this bring me anywhere to ultimate meaning? Yes, there is a season for all activities, uh, a time to dance and a time not to dance. Uh, but does that give you meaning? Even in the most balanced lives, there is this basic question that he asks, what does the doer gain? by all that he's doing. What does he gain by doing all of this? And ultimately, the answer is not much. It's a desperate question, and it lies side by side with the, uh, the affirmation God has ordered time and placed it in human hearts. And in fact, there's this wonderful passage that says God has placed eternity in human hearts. What do you think that means? God has placed eternity in human hearts. Uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, he's given to us this capacity to want to be able to access something that's transcendent, that's above ourselves. And yet, under the sun, we can't find it. Uh, so I, I think you're right. I think you're right. It's this awareness that we have both an earthbound set of limitations, but a heavenbound longing. Uh, one of the ancient fathers of the church, his name was uh, St. Augustine, uh, said something that I think is very profound. He said, um, uh, uh, I'm trying to think how it goes now. Um, God has made us for himself and our hearts are restless until they rest in him. I think he's talking about this very kind of idea that's in Ecclesiastes. God has put eternity in our hearts. God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless till they rest in him. Uh, so we have this longing for something that's transcendent, uh, and yet we have a very difficult time reaching out for it in the world under the sun. 
So the problem of the human race, of course, is that we only see bits and pieces, little bits and pieces at a time. We don't see the whole, and we are incapable of seeing the whole. So there's this collision between this innate thirst for transcendence and this blunt reality that we are all in a world under the sun and we're all going to die. So for the believer in God, only in that way can there be any kind of certainty that death does not lead to despair. That death is, in fact, not the end. In fact, John Donne, who said, Ask not for whom the bell tolls, it tolls for thee, also has a wonderful line in one of his poems that says, Death, thou shalt die. Because of the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, death, thou shalt die. Um, so in turn, this knowledge of the God who sees the totality, if we would trust in him, that will free us to appreciate and enjoy the rhythms of life uh, within the context of this larger perspective. Um, another thing that Kohelet talks about is the idea of justice. God will call the past to account. I'm using a phrase from the New International Version here, which I think is a, captures the essence of this. Uh, so his initial ob observation is that we live in a world full of injustice. Well, pretty much everybody would agree with that. Uh, in fact, today, the big issue is social justice, uh, whereas previously the issue was more individual justice. Uh, but now we are talking about something that's systemic. So it's in this broader cultural category, justice. Can we find justice in the world? Kohala is going to say that if you don't believe in God or trust in God, you will not be able to find justice in the world. Justice can only come from God himself. And we are certain that we're going to die, and therefore we need to recognize that apart from God, we are just basically animals that are meaningless to ourselves and meaningless to everyone else. So the only conclusion is that life's activities need to be enjoyed, but as temporary gifts, not as things that give ultimate meaning. We can enjoy the benefits of life. We can enjoy work. We can enjoy uh, children. We can enjoy things that uh, make us happy. But those are temporary. Uh, everybody probably knows the feeling of going to a party which was filled with all kinds of energy and excitement and uh, fun and then sort of the downside of that later when you're by yourself and the party's over and nobody's around and it's back to the grind, you know. Uh, that's that emptiness that's there. Humans long for justice. We care about justice. But Kohelet is pretty blunt in saying, in this life under the sun, you are not going to find it. There are massive injustices in the world. Oppression, exploitation, misery, and they apply to basically all people groups. There's probably no people group in the world that hasn't experienced injustice. Uh, Africans experience injustice, Indians experience injustice, Native Americans experience injustice, the Irish experience injustice, the Scots. Uh, you can go down the list and start in with the Aborigines and end up with the First Nations in Canada and everybody in every group has experienced injustice. It is the story of the world. 
It's not the story of one part of the world, the story of the whole world. Um, so Kohelet is basically saying, you're not going to solve that problem under the sun. You want to, and you have a strong desire for justice, but you aren't going to be able to reach that. In fact, he's going to, uh, at one point, say even people that are unborn, in other words, the, the, the uh, uh, creature who hasn't even breathed its first breath is better off than the living uh, because they at least don't have to put up with all this stuff. Now, that's pretty pessimistic, obviously. That's one of the reasons this book gets uh, a lot of marks for pessimism because of those kinds of statements. But those kind of conclusions are, he says, inevitable when God is bracketed out. So uh, back to some questions. What, how does contemporary, the contemporary focus on social justice compare with what Kohelet says about justice? One of the modern buzzwords uh, today about justice is the woke uh, uh, way of seeing life and approaching life and so on. Um, I don't know if I should use a local example, but it gained a lot of attention across the nation when you were tearing down all your statues uh, on Monument Boulevard. Um, Is that going to bring about justice? Well, I don't know the answer to that, but I have my suspicions that it probably isn't going to do it. Uh, not because we should champion things that aren't right, but because humans don't basically change by some external action like that. Um, the real problem is what um, uh, one very famous thinker said it this way. He said, what's wrong with the world? I'm wrong with the world. The problem isn't out there. It's me. And I'm a symbol of everything that's wrong with the world. Uh, and any real forward motion in terms of justice is going to have to be a fundamental change in the way we think about things, not just handling external objects of some kind. So work under the sun is the same kind of thing. Uh, the conventional motivations for work uh, often tend toward despair. Um, how many of you have heard of people who have worked all of their life and they retire and about two years later they die? They, they, they hated work and, and now they don't know what to do with themselves. Um, in fact, as a pastor, I often encourage people when they think of retirement, you need to retire towards something, not just away from something. Too many people retire just away from something. But you need to, you need to be going somewhere uh, because only in that way do you have any kind of meaning to what you're doing. So there are a lot of conventional uh, thoughts about that. People that are motiva motivated by ambition, and a good many people are, uh, ultimately there's not really any meaning in even that either. Because if you gain the whole world, but you lose yourself, what have you profited by that? 
So a dropout, of course, is even worse because uh, as Ecclesiastes, he, he just eats his own flesh. I mean, he is so low on the totem pole of intelligence, he doesn't know how to do anything. He to consume himself. Um, uh, the workaholic, however, isn't much better. Uh, he works and works and works, but the bottom line is everybody dies and you can't take it with you. Um, can I indulge you in a bad joke? Not an obscene joke, just not one very polished. It's about the guy that heard from the death angel that he was going to die. And so he said, you'll die tonight. So he spent all day uh, look, getting together all of his wealth into, into gold bricks. And he ended up with a whole suitcase full of gold bricks. So he dies. He gets his suitcase. He takes it to heaven. And he's outside the gate. And uh, St. Peter, as, as at least the legend is, is going to be at the gatekeeper. You know, be the gatekeeper. So what you got in the suitcase? Uh, uh, this is just some personal things I want to take with me. Well, you, we don't let you do that here. I've, I've got to look in there. So I don't want you to look in there. Yeah, I've got to look in there. All right, okay. So he opens the suitcase. He uh, sees all these gold bricks. And Peter says, you came to heaven with a suitcase full of pavement? <laughs> okay, that's a bad joke. But, but it is kind of what we're talking about. Uh, because all of that stuff that you amass uh, as they say, you can't take it with you, and you really can't. Um, so uh, the most hopeless person uh, probably of everybody is the one who is truly alone, uh, who, who doesn't, for the sake of wealth, has given up friends, he's given up family, he's just obsessed. It's like the little short story, The Rocking Horse Winter. I don't know if you've ever had to read that. There must be more money, there must be more money, and he's, uh, you know, that's sort of the theme uh, work that is relationally motivated at least has some relative value because you're using your work not simply to consume things for yourself, but in order to minister to other people. So it contributes to friendship and to mutual help and to your family. And it offers some amount of protection. Uh, so work has some meaning if it reaches beyond just you. So if the benefits of work can be used for acts of mercy rather than just to make yourself more wealthy, then it does have some relative value. Uh, but if it's just for you, then it doesn't really have much at all. Uh, there is a biblical view of work. I find this is a question that a lot of young people seem to be asking these days. Why do we have to work? They would prefer not to but they would prefer to eat. <laughs> uh, so uh, it becomes kind of a self-contradiction in a way. But the biblical view of work is that work, at least in, in its best sense, ought to be creative. That, of course, is one of the downsides of the Industrial Revolution, is that work becomes a matter of doing one thing that's a piece of something, but you never do see the big piece. You just do the one thing over and over and over and over and over again, like on an assembly line. So it takes away the creativity of work. But ideally, at least, work should be creative. It should be relational. In other words, you don't work just for yourself. You work for others as well. Your family, your children, 
your friends, uh, your parents. Uh, work should be self-fulfilling, and it should glorify God. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do all to the glory of God, as it says in the New Testament. So work has, has value, but it doesn't have ultimate value. It has temporary value. And in the end, the emptiness of wealth is very oppressive because there's a dark side to wealth as well. The person in love with money always wants more. It's like someone asked the very, very rich person, how much is enough? He said, just a little more. So no matter how much you have, there's, there's this drive to, to continue to, to, to strive for more. Um, and the more wealth you gain, the more people want to help you spend it. Um, I have a very wealthy friend who's a multimillionaire. Um, I have never asked him for anything. And I'm determined I won't. Uh, there have been occasions when, she, when he has uh, blessed my wife and I, uh, or our church or something like that, but that was his decision. Uh, that was not something I requested from him or asked him to do. Uh, and one of the reasons is because I know that people who are wealthy always know that people want to get next to them so they can get a piece of that. Uh, and the more you have, the more people expect that you will uh, owe them something because you have more than they do. Uh, that's sort of the nature of things. Um, common laborers, on the other hand, can sleep pretty well because they don't have much and they don't expect much either, so they can go to sleep at night. Whereas the wealthy person, he lays awake at night wondering how he can protect things, how he can get hedge funds, how he can uh, uh, manage his money, manage his wealth, which is another buzzword these days, managing your wealth. So for the rich person, wealth is really going to burn him when he collects it and it's going to burn him when he dies because he can't take it with him and everybody dies. So he's going to enter the world like everybody else, uh, and he's going to leave the world like everybody else, naked in both cases. You're born into the world naked, and you're going to leave the same way. Um, that is the nature of things, and the, the toll of that is, is huge. So <clears throat> this profound observation, even though people work endlessly, they don't find fulfillment in material things because those material things do not meet their deepest needs. Um, so I want to ask you, how would you define your deepest needs? Uh, well, you can do it in terms of Abraham Maslow if you want. Yeah, I mean, he has, you know, basic lead, but self-actualization is kind of up at the top of his pyramid. Self-actualization needs. I suppose many people would think that. But what does self-actualization actually mean? Um, possibly, yeah. I mean, I, I generally agree with Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but... Uh, I think you've got to go further than that uh, somehow. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. One, I think if I was you know, pitching things, I guess there's a number of things you could sure. describe that way. But yeah. even just, just being known is something that I think we 
Okay. Uh huh. Yeah, I, I think that is part of the conclusion, at least of the book of Job. Job, in the end, is comforted because God knows he's there. God has spoken to him. He knows he's there. It's not just uh, an idea. It's, it's real for Job. Uh, so I think, I, think that's a, I think that's valid, being known. Yeah. Something that's bigger than yourself. Yeah. 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 A little louder for my benefit. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Well, Kohelet is driving us to think about these kind of things. He's he's. He's working hard to take us down this path that forces us to think deeply about these basic ultimate kinds of questions, ultimate kinds of values. Uh, with respect to life and death, the wise man's no different than an idiot because they're both going to die. You can, be, you can be incredibly wise and smart, but that doesn't get you out of the bottom line. Uh, the drive to possess things, to accumulate things, ends up as vapor as well. Uh, and existence is full of all kinds of unanswered questions during your life and unanswered questions about death. So um, let's ask a couple other questions. What do modern people assume about work and wealth? Okay, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, encouragement to try to find work that you want to do, as opposed to work that you have to do. I suppose that would be true enough. Okay, yeah, yeah, I think so. Uh, it's interesting uh, that I find a lot of people today work in order to get to the weekend. The weekend is what is meaningful to them. Work is only a sort of a necessary evil to get to the weekend, um, which is a pretty fragmented way of thinking about life. Um, uh, does wealth make you happy? The majority of people that win the lottery end up miserable and, broke. <laughs> and often broke. That's true, too. <laughs> uh, it doesn't seem, how, how could they not see this was coming, but, um, but they seem to miss it somehow. Um, uh, how do those kind of assumptions compare with what Kohelet says about work and wealth? Well, Kohelet basically says work and wealth are temporary things. They have limited value. 
they don't answer ultimate questions. And if you don't get beyond those sort of localized questions to the ultimate questions, you will end up truly in despair. So Kohelet summarizes his investigation about wisdom. Uh, in the end, he concedes that probably the task is impossible to, to gain ultimate wisdom, but he continues to allow the reader to sort of look over his shoulder as he's exploring these sorts of things. And he is going to talk about death because death is not a choice we make, but a choice that's made for us. Unless, of course, you resort to suicide. Uh, only then is death a choice that you make for yourself. But for most people, death is not a choice they make. It just happens. Even since we have been here this past week, uh, a very good friend of my wife and I, we both went to college together. Um, he died unexpectedly, had a massive heart attack. He's gone. Um, his wife was a nurse. She tried to do CPR, and it, she was unsuccessful, and so his funeral will be uh, this next week. Um, that happens all over the world, repeated times again and again and again. So Kohala talks about that. Humans are not even sure whether they will be loved or hated after they're dead. I suppose you might like to be like Tom Sawyer and go to your own funeral and hear what they say about you. Um, he wasn't dead, of course, they, but they thought he was. Um, but that probably would not give you a truly fair picture of yourself. Uh, the only certainty is the certainty of death itself and life under the sun. Uh, you'll never really get satisfied with life under the sun because everybody in the end dies. This is what Kohelet is going to say. So he's, he's, he's working you forward through all of these kinds of ideas and philosophical explorations, uh, the exploration of different lifestyles and so on, to bring you to the edge of a conclusion. After he has viewed all of this, Kohelet has discovered that the activities of life under the sun end up as mist. They are vapor. They have no ultimate meaning. Nothing is enduring. Nothing has final meaning. Everything uh, comes to an end. Uh, eternity is in your heart where you long for transcendence, but you can't get there because death is the end of all humans. So in this, this exploration, he's given you the opportunity to go with him through this pathway uh, to observe what it means to live in the world without an intimate knowledge of God. And he has discovered that wisdom has relative values, but not ultimate values in the world, uh, because of this dark thread that is woven throughout all of life. And that dark thread is the thread of death. So what are humans without God? I'm going to use this little uh, photo of uh, David, whom we've been talking about earlier this week. This is Michelangelo's uh, version of David. Um, uh, we've made him at least modest at this point, and I'm calling him the autonomous man. Uh, the autonomous man, the man who is self-sufficient, who believes that as a human, he is the measure of all things. So humanism, the focus on the human being, him or herself, bracketing out God, tends toward 
a number of different kinds of responses. Biologism, which basically says that you are an unplanned biological accident. The only difference between you and a toad is an accident. It's a genetic accident that's happened by the bombardment of your DNA structure, but eventually you went from being a toad to being a human, or you went through a progress uh, of, of, of that sort of thing. Or you can respond with behavioralism. Behaviorism is like B.F. Skinner, that you are just a bundle of chemical responses. You're like Pavlov's dog. Uh, things stimulate you and you respond, and that's basically what you are. Or the existentialist would say that by some unknown cause, you have become self-conscious matter. But you have to create meaning for yourself. There's no meaning outside of what you create for yourself. Incidentally, that is one of the unique features, of course, of being a human is self-consciousness. Trees are not self-conscious. Probably even dogs aren't self-conscious at least in the way we think of it in terms of humans. Uh, I think dogs probably have a certain amount of emotion, uh, but I'm not sure we would say they're self-conscious. I don't know. I've never actually talked with a dog. I've talked to a dog, but not with a dog. Um, but when a dog is laying on the porch staring off into the sky, I guess I'm doubtful whether he's asking the question, who am I? What is my ultimate meaning? Uh, I think that comes from self-consciousness that is unique to humans, which I would suggest is part of being made in the image of God. Um, in any case, sometimes humans descend to narcissism, which is this excessive love of self, and I think that has become the hallmark of the current culture, is massive narcissism. Uh, Maybe situationalism, where there's not really any ethical absolutes. What is right for you is not right for me. There's no absolute rights. There's just what I think is right for me. Uh, or maybe anarchy, the absence of any outside authority. Or finally, nihilism, just self-destruction like Hemingway. What is human nature without God, if you bracket out God? So humans express themselves in a variety of ways. Again, I'm using an autonomous man, this one by uh, a French sculptor. Uh, so you may be familiar with the thinking man. Uh, he is actually in Detroit. At least one of the casts is in Detroit. There's about a half a dozen of them in the world. Uh, but Detroit has one right outside the Detroit Institute of Art. So he sits out there all winter long with no clothes on and freezes his buns off, but um, he's kind of a, a symbol of the autonomous man. Ethics are situational. They're not absolute. Ethics are relative. Ethics are by popular consent, which means they're always changing at any given time. Uh, Culture doesn't have any objective standards. Uh, behaviors should be non-traditional. In fact, there's a massive rebellion against any kind of tradition uh, that is worked into the social justice theme as well. Uh, trendiness. Uh, you don't want to miss out. You want to you want to be different, but you want to be different just like everybody else is different, which is a, a bit of an oxymoron, I think. Um, 
uh, I heard about a guy that decided to be different, so he parted his hair sideways. Part of it combed forward and part combed backward. It worked good, but people always whispered in his nose. <clears throat> um, <laughs> just not a bad joke. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> uh, attitudes, narcissism, uh, responses, the will to power, license, repression, anarchy, all of those kinds of things. The wisdom of Solomon uh, in Kohelet or the wisdom of Kohelet in the sort of the guise of Solomon is that, yes, there are relative values under the sun. In fact, he says nothing is better than to enjoy life. But he qualifies that considerably. Uh, nothing is better than to find satisfaction in your work, but he qualifies that. You can't find ultimate meaning in your work. Uh, it pays to do good, even though there's a lot of injustice in life. And the life of the fool, on the other hand, is just self-destructive. On the other hand, there is this dark thread, life under the sun. Humans are full of envy. They're full of greed. The legal systems are often unjust. Uh, unexpected things happen that change everything for you. We all know of people who have had some accident or something that debilitates them or whatever, and that changes their life, uh, changes everything they think about and ultimately everybody dies. And if you try to achieve autonomous values uh, by bracketing out God where God is X'd out, then human expressions end up being hedonism. In other words, I value what gives me pleasure. Uh, utilitarianism, I value what works toward my self-success. Uh, social contract, I value what society values. Uh, all of these basically conclude with Humans are the measure of all things. That's essentially what humanism is. Humanism is the way of thinking that humans are the measure of all things. The highest end for humans is to glorify, enjoy, and serve themselves. That is life under the sun. If, on the other hand, we consider God, what I would call theonomous values, values derived from God, then ethics derive from a holy God, not from society or from my own inventions. They derive from God himself and his character. Aesthetics, what I think is valuable, whether that's art or music or other kinds of values, those derive from a creator who made all things good. And those values are from him. They're not self-created. Even work and play have value because they reflect God's labor and God's rest. And so in the end, God is the measure of all things rather than humans are the measure of all things. And the highest end for humans is to glorify, enjoy, and serve God forever, which is the last concluding line, I think, of the Westminster Confession uh, if you're familiar with that, but it is uh, quite opposite to the narcissism that we find in the current world. So, only when you accept life as the gift of God is there genuine fulfillment. Why is it, do you think, that many people think of life as a right rather than a gift?
because they don't believe in a giver. I think you're right. Yeah. Um, Kohalik goes on, procrastination and idleness, those aren't so good. Uh, so you need to make the most of your opportunities, but that still is a relative value, not an ultimate value. A life should be uh, live for joy, but that also is a relative value, not an ultimate value, and it is the gift of God. Um, so in the end, Kohelet's choice in chapter 12, which is the end of his book, the ultimate choice that he uses is the word creator, which means that life and meaning cannot be derived from the self. They must be derived from something higher than the self. Every action of life cries out for meaning, and the sooner you realize that, the better, and the sooner you realize that that meaning must come from God, then that is all the better. Uh, images of old age in chapter 12 are kind of uh, depressing, and as I work my way through my 70s, I find that chapter to be more relevant than it ever was when I was 20 years old. Um, the old house begins to fall apart. Uh, you can't see out the windows anymore because you have cataracts. Uh, <laughs> the door is falling off its hinges. Uh, you can't sleep very easily. You don't hear very good anymore. You've lost some of your hearing. Uh, you're afraid of heights, you're afraid of public places, your hair turns gray, uh, your sexual desire dies, nothing remains but the funeral. Those are all the images that he uses in chapter 12. He does different metaphors for these things, but this is what he's really talking about. He's talking about the loss of things as you get older. And therefore, before you exhaust your life in futility, Remember your creator. That is the only real hope for ultimate meaning. Otherwise, everything truly is vapor indeed. God and only God can provide ultimate meaning. So that's basically what Ecclesiastes is about. That's what uh, this book Kohelet is doing as it explores one of these speculative questions, the question of meaning. So uh, we're getting ready to close out today. I'm going to close out a few minutes early and leave the song until tomorrow. Um, that should be an interesting book to explore. Do you have any final takeaways from the book of Ecclesiastes? You're going to read it tomorrow. And I'm, uh, are you reading the song tomorrow as well? Okay, so by the time we get to class tomorrow, you'll have read the song also. Uh, but you will have read Ecclesiastes, and I'm hoping that some of the stuff I've talked about today will uh, kind of pop up for you as you work your way through some of the passages in this book.